Emerald Podcast Series. Research that makes a difference. Hello, and welcome to the Emerald Publishing Podcast Series. I'm your host, Daniel Ridge, a commissioning editor at Emerald, and I'm thrilled to bring you today's guest, Dr. Yelena Blabinich Mavrovich. Today, we delve into a pressing issue that affects at least 9% of the global population, eating disorders. Author Dr. Blabinich Mavrovich navigates this complex terrain in her new book, titled Eating Disorders in a Capitalist World, Superwoman or Super Failure. In this work, she uniquely blends her roles as a sociologist and reality therapy counseling therapist to offer a nuanced understanding of eating disorders, informed not just by academic rigor, but also by deeply personal real-life experiences. Her commitment extends beyond theory as she is a co-founder of the Center for Eating Disorders BEA in Zagreb, Croatia, reflecting her dedication to making a tangible difference in the field. She has dedicated her life to therapeutic work with individuals struggling with conditions like anorexia, bulimia, and binge eating disorder. In her book, Dr. Blobinich Mavrovich combines scientific analysis with personal narratives from in-depth interviews to explore the societal forces shaping eating disorders. In today's episode, we'll unpack her research further. I began my conversation with Dr. Blobinich Mavrovich by asking her to elaborate on the challenges researchers face in understanding and addressing eating disorders in today's society. We can say that we know a lot about eating disorders, but uh, there's still an enigma. All researches uh, are done today uh, in a biopsychosocial model or paradigm uh, that believes that eating disorder results uh, of series of cumulative influences. So from genetic predisposition, psychological uh, personality traits, maybe some traumas uh, or experiences, difficult experiences in growing up, or some specifics in family dynamics. But also uh, we have to remember that exposure to peer influence, maybe teasing, and uh, cultural influence uh, that emphasize uh, the ideal of thinness, or at least a perfect appearance for women, or for men, athletic or muscular body for men, so these all segments influence and result, uh, their result is eating disorders. But uh, we, what we know is, is a lot, but also we have some unanswered questions. Like uh, why mostly young women suffer from anorexia and bulimia? And also how similar and how different anorexia and bulimia in their etiology are? and maybe also to what extent uh, genetic predisposition and cultural influence actually lead to eating disorders. And also, I think maybe the, the most important uh, question is, what is the most effective treatment for uh, different forms of eating disorders? Because today we know that uh, average treatment lasts from four to seven, maybe even to 10 years, and that we have uh, a 20 percentage of people suffering from anorexia and 30 to 40 percent people suffering from bulimia that uh, remain chronically ill. So uh, we have to also state that uh, anorexia is a mental disorder with the highest mortality 
among um, adolescent girls. So it is very important that we search and, and find answer to these uh, questions. Maybe just to add that uh, in last half century, there was a strong raise in eating disorders. So uh, we, we have to think about why now, why in second half of 20th century, eating disorders are so present. And also uh, that we have new forms like bulimia was recognized uh, in 1979 and five or 10 years ago, we have definition for binge eating disorder as a special uh, form of eating disorders. So uh, diagnostic changes and also maybe phenomenology of, of eating disorder changes throughout the years. And it is a challenge for a researcher to look into uh, eating disorder. Yeah, there was a lot there that I'd like to unpack through our conversation. One thing that I'm curious about is how you mentioned historically how eating disorders were recognized at different periods of time. And I'm wondering how um, the perception of eating disorders has evolved over time from you know our early medical interpretations to more recent sociological and feminist perspectives. Yes, it is very, very interesting because at the beginning, we can say that eating disorders, uh, because of the strong uh, physiological effects of anorexia, that is, uh, we, we can say, uh, the most popular or the most recognizable uh, form of eating disorder. So it has a strong somatic picture. And uh, so it was uh, seen as, a, as organic uh, disease at the beginning of 20th century. But then at the same time, because of the uh, rise of uh, psychoanalysis, so at the beginning we had some pretty bizarre theories that it was subconscious fear of oral impregnation in a, in a basis for anorexia. It was really strange. But then it, uh, after the Second World War, um, Hildebruch, uh, American psychiatrist of German origin, uh, she uh, put foundation for today understanding of eating disorder. Uh, she looked into it in a way that it was developmental psychological disorder that is uh, mostly characteristic for young uh, girls who uh, strive for autonomy and search for their identity. And uh, most of it is uh, like a framework for today's understanding of uh, eating disorders. Well, so, you know, the relationship between eating disorders and cultural influence has been a subject of debate with researchers. And some view it more as a culture-bound syndrome and others view it where they emphasize the socio-cultural factors like media pressure and body ideals. Um, and especially, you know, we live in a society that's just inundated with social media and body images and these ideals. Um, so I'm wondering, you know, how do these perspectives impact our approach to prevention and treatment and becoming conscious of it? Well, uh, as you can see, uh, with eating disorder, nothing is, is simple. So everything is very complex and this phenomena has many layers. So at, at one point, we, we can say it's a 
strong uh, influence of the media and that was the the main point of uh, feminist uh, perspective that was very uh, present in the last uh, part of, of 20th century that uh, pointed out that this media objectivization of female body put great pressure on uh, on young girls who uh, also saw themselves as as not good enough, not perfect enough, not beautiful enough, as all those uh, uh, models in magazines. Then today we can transfer this into uh, influence from social media that is maybe even worse because young people are li- literally throughout the day are with their cell phones and on social media looking at those perfect pictures that are filtered, that are changed. And although they know that it is not reality, but uh, this uh, subliminal influence is is very, very strong. There was one um, research that uh, showed that when women uh, looked at the photographs of other women, well, models, and it was put, uh, so in, in, in words, these uh, pictures are altered, they're not real, uh, they, they were photoshopped or filtered, but uh, the result was the same uh, as when uh, women watched uh, the pictures uh, that are without those warnings. So they felt uh, shamed uh, with uh, lower self-esteem, worse uh, body image after only five minutes of looking at those uh, photographs. So we can say that those uh, messages that are through visual media, that are very, very strong and powerful. And also we have one another uh, example on island Fiji. Yeah, that really struck me in your book, this example of Fiji. So in 1985, uh, American, I think, research um, and Becker went the, to, to that island and uh, made a survey, tested the girls, and uh, they they showed very healthy relationship with their bodies, very good self-esteem, because uh, traditionally Fiji society uh, uh, regards a larger body, bodies as, as, as uh, very nice, at the sign of... Uh, wealthy family of community that takes care about their member. But um, after that time, so in 1985, satellite television was introduced into the island. And three years after, uh, the same research was again conducted there. And it was showed that the level of binge purge or bulimia uh, symptoms were the same as in uh, American high uh, schools or whatever, the the same uh, age group. So we see that only in three years of exposure to to media, to Western media, uh, had such a devastated uh, results on the traditional society. But maybe when we look at it, we should go uh, beyond just imitation so that uh, girls uh, looked at the very thin models or women at uh, uh, on on tv uh, screen but that was only uh, um, 
it was only a sign of some deeper messages that uh, satellite television provided. Uh, so even girls from Fiji uh, explained that through that thin body, they wanted to have that social pos position of a very influential, uh, su successful um, woman that they saw on the television. So through that body image, they did not want to be just beautiful and thin. They wanted that position in a society that those beautiful and perfect women had. Mm, so it is much more complex than just the superficial. It's the status. No, it's not just imitation. Mm -hmm. It's just a symbolic uh, communication of lifestyle and of values. Yeah. Well, you know, we've been talking about women and we often associate eating disorders with women. But what do we know about the prevalence and experiences of males with anorexia and bulimia? And how does gender influence the diagnosis and treatment of these disorders? Yes, uh, I think that in the future we will have more men suffering from eating disorders. Maybe today they suffer from double uh, stigmatization because uh, we have mental disorder that is already stigmatized as, as such but also because eating disorders are perceived by the public as feminine disorder. So uh, these are two obstacles for men with eating disorders to search for uh, help, for expert help. But uh, we know that about 10% of people with anorexia are uh, male, where boys or, or men, and uh, with bulimia it's estimated about 30%. In binge eating disorder, we have just a little bit uh, more female than male, but men are really uh, uh, well represented, if we can say that, in, in binge eating disorder. But I would like to emphasize that maybe new forms of eating disorders, like orthorexia, that is very common in um, fitness industry, combined with what we call bigore bigorexia, it's uh, muscle dysphoria, is maybe one form of eating disorder that is more characteristic for male, male uh, population. And that, uh, so it's uh, like bodybuilder things <laughs> or fitness thing that uh, uh, men uh, saw themselves, well, they see themselves as weaker, weak, or, or uh, fragile, although they are really bulk and full of muscles, but it, it is like reverse uh, anorexia. They just can't get big enough. Yeah. Girls with anorexia can be uh, enough thin because they always see themselves as a little bit like too fat or something is going on. And also people who, who have muscle dysmorphia see themselves as, as weak not mu muscular enough. So maybe that is the way for for male eating disorders to be seen and maybe to focus on that uh, form of eating disorders in a, in the future. You know, I'm curious to know what treatment looks like and also maybe the differences between the different types of bulimia, anorexia um, that we've been talking about. Um, Really, what does treatment look like? And, you know, we've identified several things that may cause it. 
and how complex that is. But what does what does it take for someone to go and get help? And what does that help look like? I think that first step or just recognizing that someone has a problem is the hardest for people with uh, eating disorder. Because uh, in their head, it is always like, I have to do this by myself. Do I want to get well? Because if I get well, I will get fat. And that is the greatest fear that anyone with eating disorder has. So maybe in that state of mind, people sometimes says, I will rather die than get fat. Because they think help means that they will gain the weight. Yes. Mm -hmm. Yes. And and for them also, uh, there is a question that if anyone will understand me, no one understands what is this inner compulsion not to eat or eat and purge or just eat in binge eating disorder so that this is like something that is stronger than me. Uh, I cannot just decide not to purge. But uh, okay, we have different uh, sorts of, of eating disorders, but in a, in a, a, a basic level, uh, there are many uh, uh, similarities. Uh, maybe we can say that this uh, distorted image of, of the body is uh, like uh, common ground of all forms of eating disorders. On then some intolerance of, uh, of feelings, of mood, intolerance of, we can say, bad emotions, because it is felt as a tension inner tension, like uh, inner uh, state that is hard to bear. And then people um, uh, search uh, some sort of relief in symptoms, eating disorder symptoms, like not eating, because uh, people with anorexia, when you feel hunger and you do not eat, then all the feelings are less present because hunger covers all of it. Also, uh, when people binge, then uh, they find some sort of relief in uh, binging and purging. So it is sort of emotional uh, regulation. So we can say uh, uh, that it is one way of looking at eating disorders. And also, when something is going on in a person's life, that they cannot feel uh, that they are in control of it. Uh, something's going on in a family, like transition years uh, in schools, someone is moving to another city or something like this, uh, some break in a relationship, love relationship. Then uh, they are all triggers for a sense of helplessness and cells, a sense of losing uh, one uh, so, uh, sense of identity. A uh, person asks, uh, who am I? Am I worthy enough? Uh, what are my uh, advantages? What, what, who am I uh, in this world? How will I succeed in this world? And then if we feel uh, incompetent, then relationship with food and body is maybe the last frontier that we can um, achieve that sense of self and control. Yeah, you know, I mean, along with that, you you do discuss in your book how sexual trauma 
can be associated with eating disorders and um, how that it can lead to dissatisfaction with the body and a distorted relationship with food, having had a sexual trauma. Can you elaborate on the ways in which um, trauma like that influences eating disorders and how individuals cope with their traumatic experiences through the relationship with their bodies and with food? Yes, yes. Uh, well, we firstly, we have to say that, that the sexual trauma is not the uh, cause of uh, all eating disorders. But uh, some people with eating disorders have experienced uh, sexual trauma. And with them, uh, it is very hard to have a good relationship with their body because especially we are now talking about uh, female patients or girls and women uh, because uh, the curves remind them of past events and also carry potential for re-traumatization. So in a way they reject components which are socially related to the female gender like curvy female body, sexuality, and what I found in my research that they reject very often the idea of reproduction, so motherhood and marriage. So sexual trauma for these women is written in their bodies and they can develop very serious uh, ways of self-harm or autodestructive behavior and also they want to be in a way invisible or thin maybe go to the childlike body and they maybe feel that if they look like a child or like a boy or something like that that it will protect them uh, in a future life when, when they will not be exposed to maybe future trauma or sexual assaults. So maybe this is the point where we can say that when people talk about eating disorder, very often they think that it's a way to uh, for girls to be beautiful, to be thin, to look like models. But we have very large group of people with eating disorders who use uh, eat, eating disorders symptom just for opposite uh, intentions. They, they want to um, get rid of their sexual attributes. They don't want to be beautiful. They want to be invisible. They, they want to get out of that sexual market or of that expectation what uh, adulthood or maturity brings. Well, I'm thinking again about treatment because this is all so complex and it's so individual for why somebody would have these these relationships with food that are so complicated. Yes, yes. In a treatment, it is very important to uh, look for individual story and uh, to go to uh, these roots of disordered eating habits and disordered uh, body image and uh, we know that there are several therapies that uh, are used uh, CBTE so it's cognitive behavioral therapy is uh, very uh, good uh, evidence-based and uh, also uh, psychodynamic therapy and uh, interpersonal therapy 
and also family uh, therapy is very good, especially for younger girls with anorexia especially. And maybe here it is very important to point out that um, uh, family involvement and psychoeducation of the whole family, especially parents, it's crucial because uh, at one hand they will understand more easily what is happening with their child, but also for them this is a chance to progress and to grow and to become a part of the change, not a part of the problem. Well, looking at the title of your book, or really the subtitle, Superwoman or Super Failure, I noted that in your book, you you discuss two contrasting stereotypes, and that's the woman is the victim and the superwoman. Can you discuss these stereotypes and talk a little bit about what the interviewees said in your book about these ideas? Yes. Yes, it was very interesting for me that in our research, those two main stereotypes uh, came out as a as the two dominant ways that female patient uh, in eating disorders unit of psychiatry uh, hospital think about female role. So we have one is a uh, uh, woman as a victim. It is a traditional role. So this is a woman submissive to a man. Um, she's uh, directed to maintain the household caring for husband and children. So it is a person who is sort of vulnerable, emotional, we, we could say like weak and dependent. And uh, everyone in a group that was interviewed was against that stereotype. They reject it and they distance themselves from that stereotype like, no, th this is like a legacy from patriarchal society our grandmothers or even mothers, but we do, don't want to uh, take that role in society. And uh, if that means to be a woman, we don't want to be a woman. So this gender role is not uh, acceptable for us. But on the other hand, we have this uh, superwoman stereotype. This is like an emancipated woman in a capitalistic neoliberal economy. And she is like a winner in all fields. She has a career, a husband, children. She is financial independent. She is very educated. And beside that, this superwoman is thin and beautiful. And she takes care of herself. She eats healthy and exercises regularly. So we can see that this is like unrealistic and idealized expectation because no one can be that perfect. So it, it, this doesn't exist in, in real life. So toward that stereotype, uh, women with eating disorder showed both admiration and rejection because it was too much uh, to, to achieve that sort of unhuman uh, superwoman <laughs> uh, ideal. And it frightened them in a way. So... Uh, they, they prefer it over the traditional woman, but maybe it is like too much to be so perfect. So these two stereotypes created some sort of confusion in uh, answering how to be a woman in today's society. So if we don't want to be this traditional victim, 
then we have to be the superwoman, but it is so hard. This it, it is impossible. Uh, we can never reach that that sort of superhuman uh, being. And then uh, solution is uh, just to stop our development. And maybe in a way, eating disorder is a sort of waiting room for adulthood, because while a girl is having eating disorder, she doesn't have to grow up. Uh, she is protected from all those demands of today uh, female in to today's society from that uh, we expect of today successful woman to be really like uh, like a superwoman. She has to do it all and she has to win in all those fields and maybe it is too much. Well, kind of overlooking your book and, and all the work that you've done with your research, with your um, your work with the interviewees, I, I really want to ask you what your hopes are for the book and um, what sort of real-world impact you would hope to have outside of academia. Uh, my deepest wish is that this book reaches uh, people with eating disorder. I would also, of course, be glad that academia understands also this uh, perspective that social impact of gender role, how it is combined with eating disorder, and, and that is very important uh, perspective to understand how personal and social come together. But I think that in my private, <laughs> in, in um, deep in my heart, I, I wish that people uh, with eating disorder, well, girls and women with eating disorder read this book, and uh, that they find inspiration to search in their own uh, hearts and soul and see how they resonate with this uh, insight. And maybe that this book serves as an inspiration to further therapeutic uh, work and that each, each uh, reader finds her own uh, answer to, to those hard questions, maybe uh, I would like that this book offers an answer that we don't have to be super women to to be uh, worthy human beings. That being sometimes being weak and uh, experiencing some loss or um, some imperfection that is like a core of uh, human experience, and that if we deny ourselves to be imperfect. I think that we deny ourselves the right to live. So this uh, like soft, gentle approach uh, that is filled with acceptance and with the right to be different, to choose our own path in life, whatever that means to each of us, that from my point of view is, is the solution to be healthy and happy and to uh, improve our mental health. Well, you yourself have several different roles. You're an activist, a therapist, a researcher in the field of eating disorders. So you definitely wear multiple hats. How do these roles intersect and how have they influenced your approach to your work? Yes, uh, <laughs> I see that these uh, uh, roles, well, these multiple roles have uh, advantages. Uh, because when I uh, researched uh, for this book, 
before I had uh, uh, some knowledge and experience that came from many years of practice in uh, preventive and educational work uh, with patients of eating disorders and their families. So I felt like an insider. And also, I think that interviewees also accepted me as one of them because very often in in their interviews, they use the phrase uh, us and them, classifying people suffering from eating disorders like us, and uh, they put me into it. <laughs> so I was very, very flattered. And maybe I see myself as a bridge uh, between eating disorder uh, sufferers and the scientific community or even community in general. And maybe I feel a double loyalty. At one hand, uh, to the academic community, which is uh, interested in the result of the research and my book, but also on the other hand, uh, to eating disorder sufferers. That their attitudes, experience and feelings, I try to translate into scientific language. Great. Thank you so much for taking the time to speak with me today. This has been really interesting. Thank you. Thank you for listening to today's episode. On our website, you can find more information about Dr. Yelena Blobinich Mavrovich, as well as a transcript of our conversation. I'd like to thank Yelena and also Sean Heron from the studio This Is Distorted for her help with this episode.